America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Europe and the country of France, America's oldest ally. Our guest, Philippe Etienne, is a French diplomat currently serving as the French ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Etienne joined the French senior civil service in 1980 and has served as ambassador to Germany and Romania, as well as permanent representative to the European Union and diplomatic advisor to the president the equivalent of the U.S. National Security Advisor from 2017 through 2019. He is a polyglot and expert on the European Union. France's long alliance with America began during the American Revolution. France provided troops, armament, naval power, and money that proved critical to secure the Continental Army's ultimate victory. France and the newly independent United States established diplomatic relations in 1778. However, King Louis XVI's ambitious spending at home and in the American colonies brought France close to bankruptcy. In 1789, financial hardship combined with meager food supplies elicited mass protests known as the French Revolution, which abolished France's absolute monarchy and feudal system. Soon after the turn of the century, Napoleon Bonaparte sold the French territory of Louisiana to President Thomas Jefferson for $15 million, effectively doubling the size of the United States. The Napoleonic Wars from 1803 to 1815 brought large swaths of Europe under French rule and diffused liberal French ideals throughout the continent, including due process of law and the elimination of feudalism. Educational and cultural exchanges characterized the largely friendly U.S.-France relationship through the following century, as evidenced by the 1884 gift of the Statue of Liberty from the people of France to the people of the United States. In 1917, the U.S. entered World War I to support France and the Triple Entente. During World War II, the U.S. ended relations with the Vichy government when Germany occupied all of France and supported General Charles de Gaulle's Free France forces and government in exile. The two countries normalized relations at the end of the war, and the United States provided significant aid to Europe through the Marshall Plan. The U.S. and France became formal allies through NATO in 1949 and enhanced trade and security cooperation during the Cold War, even as they disagreed on elements of French decolonization and the Suez Crisis of 1956. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, France joined many European nations in alliances that worked to unify the continent. In 1992, the Single European Act created a common market, and the Maastricht Treaty established the European Union. France and other European nations formed the Eurozone in 1999, in the hope that a shared currency would provide increased growth and security in Europe. 
Despite the French withdrawal from NATO's integrated military structure from 1966 to 2009, France has been a strong political ally within NATO, and France contributed to NATO operations in Bosnia in 1993 to 1994, and in the 1999 air campaign aimed to end mass atrocities against civilians in Kosovo. As a permanent member on the United Nations Security Council, France has been an invaluable partner in combating terrorism in South Asia and the Greater Middle East, and in combating domestic terrorism in Europe, while showing resilience in the face of horrific attacks. We welcome Ambassador Etienne as France faces challenges of energy security, the European Union's recovery from COVID-19, complex intra-EU relations, sustained counter-terrorism efforts in the G5 Sahel region of West Africa, and competitions between authoritarianism and democracy. Ambassador Etienne, bienvenue. Welcome to Battlegrounds. Let me begin by saying what an honor it was to, to serve with you and, and to, to work with you on, on some of the issues we're going to talk about today. Welcome to Battlegrounds. Well, thank you very much, H. It's a pleasure for me, really, a pleasure, because it was such a, such a, a great honor, but also uh, so important for me to work with you as we were the two of us, uh, National Security Advisor for the U.S. and uh, in France. And I, I, I will never forget a cooperation and my visit to Washington the first time and uh, everything we have done together. And uh, as a French ambassador, one of my Big, uh, the big events at the beginning of a mission was my visit to the Hoover Institution and to you in Stanford. So thank you very much for having me on Battlegrounds. Well, thanks, Philippe. I think it's, it's very fortunate for France to have you as, as, as the ambassador to the United States and, and, of course, very fortunate for us as well. And we have a lot to talk about, Philippe, so I'll just dive right into it. I, I think uh, both of us were very concerned about, about NATO in our time as National Security Advisors. And the importance both to reform NATO and strengthen NATO at a time when there were some very significant security threats to the east from Russia and to the south with the, the migration crisis centered on the catastrophe of the of the Syrian uh, civil war. President Macron has uh, he's been critical of NATO, which I, frankly I've welcomed. Right. Because I think that we need to provide impetus for reform and strengthening the alliance. What's your assessment of the alliance today? What do you see as the biggest threats and and is NATO up to it? Well, Indian NATO is, uh, remains a, a absolutely critical institution, the bedrock of our collective security. And uh, um, not only because of uh, the traditional challenges, not only because of the rise of China, but also because there are new challenges, which are horizontal challenges, cyber security, uh, the security in the outer space and uh, information wars. And so uh, we need more than ever this uh, collective alliance. But uh, as you said, uh, at one point, my president uh, 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 has expressed some uh, some critics is quite in strong terms. <laughs> well, I think it was the brain death of NATO. Yeah. For Yes, brain, brain. <laughs> a brand day yes. uh, uh, concerning the not the military dimension but the political dimension of this uh, of the the way NATO was functioning it was just before the NATO summit in London in December 2019 and why did he say that after after what what was the, the his um, uh, the motivation well you remember and maybe we will come back to this uh, later but 
just before we had the military intervention of Turkey in the northeast of Syria. And this intervention was tar targeted the, the people with whom we, we fought together against uh, Daesh, what we call Daesh, what you call ISIS. So it's, it's, it was a bit strange and quite frankly problematic to have a, a, one of the most important allies inside NATO uh, against our allies against terrorist organizations, which have uh, attacked France, especially plotting their uh, attacks against France in 2015 from northeastern Syria. And then we had also, obviously, um, with the American, the, the, the previous US administration, uh, uh, some decisions which have been taken without really consulting uh, allies also. So a general issue of uh, both a lack of consulting among allies, but also um, a lack of common vision about who who, who is our enemy today. We, wh what are we here together for? So this this was uh, the outset of a very positive process because our leaders uh, of the NATO nations decided in London to to launch an exercise to to task a group of independent wise persons, uh, which was headed by Wes Mitchell and the former uh, German uh, minister Thomas de Maizière. Uh, to which uh, former French minister Hubert Védrin took part, and they have given quite a good report uh, recently. So now we have a new uh, new thinking, which uh, a solid base, which is the report of this group of, uh, of, of of experts, to to look at the NATO in the coming years. And we are, as France, uh, very much committed to this, and we welcome also the the U.S. recommitting clearly now to to NATO to Article Five. So this goes into the right direction and i think also that something positive in this but I, we might come back to this is that the european union also as such has been changing uh, in the recent years and the eu is more and more a, a, a very important partner for nato so this is a state of affairs we we i think we were right to criticize some aspects of NATO, maybe in very strong terms. And I think things have uh, moved uh, rather positively since then. Well, well thank you. I'd like to talk more uh, about the European Union, but first, can we talk about Turkey a little bit? I'm, I'm concerned about Turkey, and I, I think that you are, and, and, and uh, many of our friends are, because I think Turkey is drifting away, I think it's safe to say, from, from the West. And I think if this drift continues, it could be the largest geostrategic shift since the end of the Cold War, and it would be against us. And and some of the the causes of concern you've already you've already mentioned, but there's also really this idea that Turkey is 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 using refugees as almost a, a way to threaten uh, Europe. We had the we had the the the, you know, the contention in the in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, territorial disputes within NATO between Turkey and Greece, and the Turks becoming aggressive there. We have Turk, Turkish uh, proxy forces, uh, supported militias, fighting in in from Libya uh, into uh, across to Azerbaijan, as well as the as the the uh, intervention uh, into eastern Syria that that you mentioned, and they're buying us four hundred missiles, you know, from from Russia, <laughs> and uh, and so there are, are some significant causes from court concern with with President Erdogan's policies. What, how do you assess the relationship? And what's your prognosis, maybe more importantly? Can Do you think we'll be able to convince Turkey that its interests really do align with the United States and Europe and NATO countries more than they do with, for example, Russia uh, and Iran? 
Well, thank you. This is a really important question for the future. I, I, I cannot guess what the future will be, of course, but uh, I will give you my, my own uh, view on this, uh, considering our recent uh, experience. You, you've mentioned uh, the, both the fact that Turkey is a key partner, uh, not only in NATO for uh, the United States and the, the, the other allies inside NATO, but also for uh, the European Union, because Turkey is a is a, is, a, is a very important, very powerful country, which is a neighbor of the European Union with a, our own history of a very close relation with, uh, with Turkey. And Turkey is a key partner for security matters, but also, as you said, for because of the migration policy, which is a big challenge for all of us, including for Turkey. And uh, so we need a, a very close cooperation. While in the recent years, we have been... Um, uh, we have seen a lot of uh, the build-up of a lot of concerns. As you, I, I will not repeat them because you have mentioned all of them. Uh, so, but uh, one of, one of the most um, I will only mention one of them. You have mentioned already, which was the the aggressivity of Turkey towards uh, Greece and uh, also uh, uh, with the Cyprus question, which remains uh, not unresolved. So, in Eastern Mediterranean in general, we were very much uh, worried. It's true that recently, in the last weeks, we have seen a, a, a much more positive uh, tone in, in the statements by the Turkish uh, government and also the Turkish president. While uh, some months ago, he was President Erdogan was very, very uh, aggressive against uh, even our country. You know, we had. Uh, did even uh, words about a boycott of French products and because of the situation the Islam and so we were really uh, concerned and, and recently it has moved uh, the, the, the statements uh, have moved more uh, to positive approach and we welcome this of course of course it must not be only about uh, words it must be also about actions deeds so uh, we will see but we, we have um, accepted uh, of course gladly to restart the, the the discussions with Turkey at all levels, uh, presidents' levels, but also governments, foreign ministers. So we we need really to, um, and this question is related to the the question before. Um, uh, to 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 see, uh, and I hope can do this, come to common visions as NATO allies about what we what we want to do as NATO allies. What are our priorities? And I think this is being discussed now uh, with the new U.S. administration, um, both the, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense came to Brussels to discuss with, uh, with their allies about the, the challenges such as Afghanistan. Turkey is a, a very important player for all of these, um, these new and, 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 and other challenges we discussed before on NATO. So we will take it seriously, but we will expect... Uh, positive actions uh, from from our Turkish ally. And we will try uh, on the French and the EU side, of course, to contribute to this. But we will remain very firm when it's about, for instance, um, the attitude towards Greece or in other um, fields. You, we can come back to Syria, to Libya. We will remain, remain, of course, very firm, but we will encourage a positive development, including the discussions be between Greece and Turkey. Thanks, Blue. You know, I, I think it's what's going to be important is how politics inside of Turkey evolve as well with yeah. President Erdogan and his wing of the AKP, which, of course, is just now outlawed the only Kurdish party as well, which 
doesn't make any sense. It seems as if they're they're almost trying to cultivate a, an internal security problem with those sorts of decisions. So I, 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 I agree with you that this is something that we have to pay attention to and, and try to accentuate the positive while being clear about what we, we can accept. But of course, you know, the country that loves any kind of arguments within the family uh, of NATO is, is Russia. Uh, and Russia has been for many years engaged in a sustained campaign of political subversion uh, against countries in Europe. I, the, Russia attacked our elections, attacked your election. Um, and, and really what they hope to do, I think, Philippe, is to, is to polarize uh, our, our populations and pit us against each other on hot topic issues in the United States. It's race and immigration and gun control. But they also want to break apart the European Union and NATO and sow dissension between our countries and, 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 and dissension really uh, in connection with the transatlantic alliance. Uh, how do you assess Russia's actions, especially what some people have called Russian new generation warfare or its sustained campaign of cyber enabled information warfare uh, against us? And, and how concerned are you about what appears to be more and more aggressive posture vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine now as they're massing forces there and, and engaged in clearly a campaign of coercion? But also, it looks like preparations for maybe a, a further invasion of Ukraine. Well, of course, we 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 have been uh, um, obliged to express our, including collectively recently, for instance, a G7 statement of our foreign ministers, very clearly, uh, not only our deep concern but our full support to sovereignty and uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine in its uh, internationally recognized uh, borders, which is an, an uh, a mention of uh, of. Crimea, we, because we have never uh, uh, recognized the annexation of, uh, of Crimea, of course. And, um, you know, France and Germany too, together uh, try to um, mediate on to, to find solutions after the Minsk agreements, at least to the conflict in Donbass in eastern Ukraine. We will continue to do this. We are committed to do this. There were ups and downs, but uh, we had not yet had, uh, in terms of ceasefire, now uh, we are really in a, in a negative, in a worrying situation with uh, the buildup of uh, these uh, forces, the Russian forces at the border with Ukraine and in the uh, and in Crimea also. So we we um, uh, we will continue still to work for a breakthrough in the in 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 in, in, a, in in looking for a political solution in the Donbas conflict based on the Minsk agreements. But uh, uh, we must recognize also that Russia is more and more. Uh, using new uh, new uh, instruments also, and uh, you mentioned the interference in our elections, and uh, because um, of course it's well known what happened in May two thousand seventeen, uh, and uh, in France, and uh, I have seen also the report uh, about not only uh, elections in two thousand sixteen but also now in two thousand twenty uh, by Russia, and as you see, as you say, that there are these new new instruments, uh, some some. New new generations, new actors who try 
to use internet and uh, social media to to sow division inside our society and uh, not not to not necessarily to create those divisions because they do exist we must be frank and they do exist without their intervention but to aggravate them to um, to uh, to put as we say oil on the fire in french and to 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 make them uh, still bigger and to because Indeed, the, the 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 clear objective is to weaken our both our uh, societies from inside, but also our relations inside. Uh, and um, you you mentioned uh, NATO, and again uh, we we have here, for instance, uh, the the example you mentioned with S four hundred bought by Turkey from Russia. But uh, um, we see also a pattern of a. Uh, uh, Corporations um, uh, in Libya, although in Libya the, the two countries uh, support different camps, but we see the, the risk of a foreign, permanent foreign military presence uh, uh, on our southern borders uh, as Europeans in this very important country, Libya, which is uh, which is not really uh, our interest and we, which we want to avoid. And and finally. Um, um, we um, we have this uh, uh, also cyber security issue, not only in our democracy but also uh, our economic interests and our security interests, uh, our critical infrastructures, energy, healthcare. It's more and more uh, sensitive, and we, we must really take it more than seriously. As far as the EU is concerned, we have, especially after the. Um, what happened with Ukraine, uh, we have succeeded to, to keep our unity on Russian policies. It, it is not easy because we have different traditions, but also different histories of different European countries who have, have their views. Uh, it's normal, it's legitimate, um, informed by their own history towards Russia. And uh, But we, together with Germany, uh, we have always insisted on, on being very... Um, very consistent and as EU, because otherwise, as you said, uh, HR, it's uh, it's also very uh, very um, tempting, and they try to do that to divide us. And one good example where we are very firm together is the use by Russia of chemical weapons and um, uh, against their opponents. Uh, when the UK was still a member of the EU, we had this critical uh, uh, attack in Salisbury where we stood absolutely firmly all together, but also recently Navalny as poisoning and with Germany also France took a very, very uh, firm stance. So we... We, we we have some some issues like cybersecurity and the use of, of chemical weapons, but also Ukraine, which we took very, very seriously. While, of course, Russia being uh, also a neighbor and um, uh, absolutely essential for some files, uh, Iran or uh, Syria or others or Afghanistan, we or more generally for the security of the European continent. Of course, we have to, to discuss with Russia, and it is uh, the sense, the meaning of the dialogue which uh, my president has uh, relaunched with uh, the Russian, uh, part, the Russian intellectuals and uh, with President Putin. So it's this combination which we want to we want to 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 to, to find, uh, and uh, we, we I think we have found it uh, in the recent <coughs> years. You know, Philippe, it's it's easy for us to focus on the problems, right? Because that's always what's in in the news and. 
when you look at the European Union, it is a tremendous achievement, right? The, in, in terms of the vision of a Europe that was united and free. And I'm reminded of, I think Churchill said at the end of World War II, he said that, uh, that Europe was a, a rubble heap, a, 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 a charnel house, a breeding ground for pestilence and, and hate. And he, and he talked about really in the wake of these two destructive world wars, horrible uh, world wars, uh, that, that that Europe continued would continue to be predict, predicted a uh, you know a, a, a states animated by I think ancient nationalistic feuds right so you know if, if, when we look in the in the broader sweep of history at least going back to the to the early 20th century I think we should we should be encouraged right by by what the EU has has accomplished but there are problems today Philippe in, in connection with this tension uh, between the desire for unity in Europe and national sovereignty and citizens' unwillingness to, to give up their sovereignty to what some people see as you know, faceless bureaucrats in, in Brussels, right? Uh, you, have, uh, you, have, you have Brexit, uh, which was a manifestation of those concerns uh, in the UK. And of course, there are tensions between East and West and North and South. And there are some countries, you know, such as Hungary, which is moving in a, in a very nativist kind of direction, uh, in a way that doesn't seem very consistent uh, with European values and principles overall. So could you describe how you view some of those tensions within the EU and, and what your recommendations are to, to try to overcome uh, those, those, or allay those tensions? Well, first, thank you for having mentioned the, that the EU, the European integration is an incredible success story. Uh, I, I remember having her listened to your conversation uh, with Christoph Huysgen, our common friend. So I will only repeat what he said about the wars between France and Germany and how our leaders after World, World War II have drawn the lessons of history and have launched uh, this historical reconciliation uh, process between uh, France and Germany, which is frankly uh, a model, uh, which and it has been working. The EU has, as a peace process, has been heavily supported by the United States, of course, after World War II. And uh, this uh, long period of peace uh, and the stop of making wars or even uh, political competitions between our countries, uh, as we did before uh, uh, World War II, uh, and to replace it with uh, this unique, uh, historical, unique uh, integration process, which is now the European Union, is really very important and positive. And we mean it very seriously. We, 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 we have grown uh, through the crisis, including the financial crisis from 2008, 2000, which lasted until 2012, actually. We have grown through the refugee crisis, although it's a very difficult issue. And we, are, we have grown through the pandemic, through the COVID crisis. Last year, uh, President Macron and Chancellor Merkel proposed that the EU for the first time, and it was accepted by the and proposed formally by the EU institutions and accepted by all, all leaders of the EU, EU nations, that the EU uh, um, takes debt, borrow money on the financial market on behalf of the EU, collectively. It's the first time. It's what uh, I think the German finance minister called the Hamiltonian moment of the European Union. So the EU grows and gets uh, stronger, especially through the crisis where 
which are moments where we realize our nations are too fragile, too, too small, even the, 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 the most important EU countries, such as Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Poland. We, we realize we are not um, face to, we, we cannot be efficient facing uh, our common challenges alone. And we have the same interests, the same values. So it's, it's really very important. Obviously, there are some differences of views, including on our basic values, because we were built, we have built this union as a union of democracies. And when Spain and Portugal or Greece or uh, Central European countries became members of the EU, it was at times when they, they had a free democracies and they wanted to consolidate those democracies. So these democratic values are a core of our uh, integration. And what you say about Hungary is correct. We have to discuss uh, frankly, candidly among our countries and also at the level of the European Parliament and the level of the European Court of Justice in some cases about the, um, the disagreements we can have because we want to preserve this uh, democratic uh, uh, heritage as a, as a base of our current and future integration. So we have challenges. We have challenges in, on all fronts, but I think that it's good news for the United States, which has contributed so much to the peace on, Euro on the European continent and security, and which has encouraged the, the beginning of this incredible adventure, which is a European integration. It is a very positive and for the US if we succeed in overcoming these difficulties. And you mentioned the, the, the mistrust of people towards uh, Brussels, but I would, I would answer, there is also probably a mistrust of uh, your citizens uh, towards Washington. <laughs> and it's, 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 not an, it's, it's a broader issue, I think, than uh, only the EU. It's, uh, we have this also at the level of the French democracy. You know, we had the Yellow Vest uh, movement. In all our democracies, we have to reinvent our democratic, uh, in, in, to, to, to preserve our democracy, and to, to, but to make it, um, to adapt it to the new, uh, the, the digital age, and uh, to, to recognize when inequalities have grown, which is the situation in most of our countries, and to fight against uh, those inequalities. And finally, uh, we have elections uh, regularly, um, free elections, and people can decide. But uh, um, I think what people want on the top of uh, our traditional democratic institutions, it's also a new, uh, a new, a new, new form of decision taking of consulting the people about uh, the decisions which are of a, of a decision taking being, being closer to the to to to, to the people and uh, we have uh, had uh, in france very interesting experiences after the yellow vest movement we had a national debate recently we have uh, created a, a body of uh, citizens uh, which have been selected by draw to to advise and to make proposals on the energy and climate transition i think we will see more and more of this also at the eu level we will not continue to reform the european union by treaties negotiated behind closed doors more and more we want to associate people so that they understand and i think they do understand the principle of being together stronger together but what they want us to, to see is 
whether they are associated to the discussions and whether we have results in the big challenges. So my answer is a rather optimist one, while I acknowledge uh, that you're, the, you're right to point to real issues and to real debates inside the EU. Well, you know, Philippe, I think the point that you make that, the, that in a democracy, the strength is that we have a say in how we're governed and, and the American people, the French people, European people, I think have to have confidence, confidence that their voices are being heard and the government's responsive. And, and, and of course, <laughs> Russia, as you mentioned, is quite active in, in, in exacerbating any of those doubts uh, about our democratic institutions and, and processes. So, so maybe the, the specter of a foreign competitor can help bring us together. And, and, and you know, maybe we could begin to talk about China a little bit and, and the EU and, and, and the concerns that many Americans have about the EU uh, because the EU doesn't seems to be at times a competitor, a competitor in trade and, and uh, in economic discourse and commerce. And uh, there are grave concerns, you know, in the United States uh, uh, during the Trump administration in particular, but they still remain among many Americans about uh, unequal access to the European market, for example, and lack of reciprocal trade arrangements. And, and, and there are also concerns these days, Philippe, about this term strategic autonomy. It sounds like our friends are leaving us and, and, and are playing us against maybe China for their own advantage and at our expense. So this is a, this is a significant concern. Could you maybe explain what your view uh, is of, of the transatlantic relationship with the EU in particular? And then, and then also, uh, can you explain this this disturbing term for many of us in the United States of strategic autonomy. Well, strategic autonomy is, uh, for me, related to another concept we have been developing in the last years, which is uh, the concept of uh, European common sovereignty. European sovereignty uh, means what I tried to explain before, which is uh, that we, <laughs> we are stronger together, we realize. We are sovereign nations, uh, no doubt of this. We are, uh, we are uh, France, Germany, Italy, uh, Belgium, and so on, all members of the EU. We, we remain sovereign nations, but we, 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 we have to pool our sovereignty together. Because, as I said before, uh, in the world as it is, uh, especially if you think of the rise of China, we need to, um, to defend the interests of our middle class, of our working people, of our citizens more broadly. Uh, and to be to efficient defend those interests, we have to, and because we are stronger together, we have to build uh, our common sovereignty in the world as it is being, as it is evolving. Uh, two examples concerning China. We, we have more and more insisted on an agenda of reciprocity in the access to, to, to economic markets, uh, but also on other, um, in other domains, the principle of reciprocity is really important. We have also introduced a screening of foreign investments, uh, which was really useful after what China has started to, to do uh, Benefiting from the financial crisis in 2008, they have acquired a lot of infrastructures, for instance, in Southern Europe. And we have started to build a common EU instrument for screening foreign investment in strategic domains. So this is, a, this is the meaning of what we try to do. And um, uh, in this concept, security and defense are not the only domain, but are a very important domain. As I said, we, we have developed our budgets for defense, both nationally, and we, we have even started to, to, to build a, a EU budget for, uh, to increase our military capacities. 
And it's it's all about reinforcing also NATO and uh, our transatlantic alliance. So when we when we speak about autonomic strategy, it means to be uh, to be able to do, especially in our neighborhood, uh, things that the U.S. in particular, our our principal ally, and uh, you know that France considers itself. Uh, as the oldest ally of the U.S., we, for, for us, this alliance is really important, not only as NATO, but also it's our national history. We, we, we understand that the United States needs to redeploy certain capacities. We, in the world as it is today, the U.S. Uh, will continue to be more and more active in the Indo-Pacific area. And uh, uh, we... We have listened to the U.S. calling us to be more able to do some things without always needing a U.S. military leadership. So to get our act together, to, to be able not only to spend more money, but to have the political will and the, the capacity to engage troops abroad. You know, we, we have still many progress to do. I think that France has shown what it can be done in Sahel. We, maybe we will discuss this later. We, we still need the American support, but at least so the, the battleground here is not a battleground where you have uh, American boots on the ground. You, the U.S. knows there is an allies which can do the, the job on the ground and it will support it because the U.S. cannot lead anywhere and uh, you have... We have the same, uh, also the new priority. And finally, I think that the, the U.S. can also take comfort, speaking about autonomic strategy and uh, sovereignty, in the fact that uh, we have de developed, France has been the first one to develop in Europe our own Indo-Pacific strategies. France being there in the Indian Ocean and uh, uh, Pacific Oceans, we have territories, we have citizens, we have forces. We have been the first European country to present our own Indo-Pacific strategy in 2018. Germany has followed, now we discuss about the EU. So it shows that these ideas, these orientations, which we call, uh, uh, about, we, we give these words, it's a good thing for the US. It means a, a more able ally, uh, which will take more on a bigger share of the burden on its shoulders. And um, uh, maybe we, we should better explain what we want, but the reality is that. Yeah. I think, Philippe, that, that, that probably the, the relationship between the, the United States and the EU, and then I would add the world's other largest economies, Japan foremost among them, have to work together to confront various forms of Chinese aggression, especially Chinese economic aggression. And one of the causes of concern, I think, in the United States was this, I think we would agree, ill-timed at the very least, comprehensive agreement on investment uh, with China at the very moment when uh, the, 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 the range of China's uh, internal egregious human rights violations and the, the slow campaign of slow genocide in Xinjiang, the, the doubling down on the repression of, of Hong Kong, the, this apparent race to perfect its Orwellian surveillance police state internally, as well as the aggressive external actions, what's happening in the South China Sea now with, you know, 200 of these boats, right, that are, they're trying to affect the largest land grab in history, the threats to Taiwan, the Senkakus, the, the bludgeoning of Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, and the campaign of, of economic coercion uh, aimed at Australia. Uh, what, what's your assessment of this comprehensive agreement on investment? It seems to me it's it's based on the same 
false promises that China made when it entered the WTO in, in 2001. Well, yeah, I know, HR, we have this discussion with our American friends, but uh, you know, the US itself has signed this uh, bilateral phase one trade agreement with China one year ago. And the Asian allies, our Asian allies, have also adhered to a free trade agreement with China uh, not later than last uh, last fall, I think, uh, our ECP, is, I think, is the name of the agreement. So to to be fair, this comprehensive agreement on investment, which had been ne- negotiated for seven years, and which is not yet uh, legally established, it has been a political conjunction at the end of last year. It's uh, When you look at it, it's... Uh, it's compared with the two other uh, agreements I mentioned, which is the US and Asian allies have concluded with China, is uh, maybe uh, something which has some added value. Uh, if you if you look at the commitments the Chinese uh, uh, took in um, uh, the effort to ratify the ILO conventions against forced labor, which is very close to what you said about uh, uh, human rights, uh, or in terms of reciprocity in access to market, which with provisions which would be benefit to not only to our European companies, if the CAI is implemented, it will also benefit to your companies uh, or to, to other companies uh, in the world. So I think it is a bit unfair to criticize us, uh, but... Um, uh, it's a discussion which uh, we, we we are happy to have, and uh, I completely accept, and I not only accept it, we have been saying this years and years, and especially uh, when we had the Trump administration, uh, and we worked together in this period, we, we, we told the U.S. that we are more than willing, we want to work with the U.S., uh, especially in inside the WT or the World Trade Organization, to reform this organization, uh, because China now uh, you mentioned it's uh, becoming a China becoming a member of the WTO and making promises and so on. We we accept the fact that the the rules are not fair, that there are hidden public subsidies to Chinese companies, even to private Chinese companies. Many very often, uh, we we see that uh, China has a has a large activity now in Africa and owns uh, a, a bigger share of uh, national debts from developing countries. We want to call China to take its responsibilities also in terms of G, as G20 member, as a, a big uh, uh, owner of debts um, taken by other countries toward China or toward Chinese corporations. All of this, we want to do it with the United States inside the international organization. So I think that on the substance, and it is the same for human rights, look at the European French statements on on Xinjiang and and the Uyghur communities and uh, Hong Kong. we we have to work together because we, we share the same views. So one of the thing, things I find really important in this respect is to set, as democracies, the standards for the use of, uh, you mentioned the, the surveillance activities and um, new technologies. It's really important for the future. And I want to draw your attention on one of the initiatives we took as France and Canada as a two, two success, two, two succeeding to um, uh, one year after the other G7 presidency. We we launched this global partnership of, on artificial intelligence 
to set the standards, which is linked to the OECD, to set the standards on the future uses of artificial intelligence. So again, we are really uh, very, very, um, uh, on, on, on the EU side, I think, very, very much keen to work with the US on all of these issues. And there are some really promising initiatives in that connection. I think, Philippe, you know, this idea of a of a D10 of democratic, you know, T10 of democratic, uh, uh, technologically advanced countries that work together on technology issues. I mean, the as you mentioned, you know, data standards in the emerging data-driven global economy, internet privacy standards, and and uh, I think if the if the United States and Japan and the EU work together and bring in other like-minded countries, India, uh, you know, Australia, the Canada, and so forth. That, that China can't take this divide and conquer approach. And so I, I, I really, I'm optimistic about it. I think that, that after a few years, we, we might wanna send some flowers uh, to Xi Jinping uh, for his aggressive actions in this period of time that I think has galvanized us and, and helped us recognize we have to work together. You know, Philippe, you mentioned earlier the, you know, this, the problem of jihadist terrorism and how it really spans uh, the greater Middle East, really. I, I would say from you know, Morocco in the, in the, in the Far East, uh, uh, across really into, uh, obviously, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I, I was really proud of the way that we worked together uh, with the U.S. providing some enabling capabilities as France took the lead mm-hmm. in Africa in the G5 Sahel. And I wondered if you might talk about how you see the risk from jihadist terrorist organizations now and what more we might do about it. I don't think it will surprise you to learn that I was quite disappointed uh, with this announcement that we're going to withdraw from, from Afghanistan and, and adding insult to injury almost on you know, by September 11th, uh, 2021, under the belief that our withdrawal will end the war. I think this is a profoundly narcissistic view and self-referential view uh, of the jihadist terrorist problem, because actually these terrorist organizations, Philippe, of course, they do have agency of their own and and a bit of authorship over the future themselves. What do we have to do, Philippe? You know, Americans are getting tired of what, what many people are calling these endless wars. What is a sustainable approach to this problem? And how can we work together really across the free world to protect our citizens you know, from those who use hatred and and, and the murder of, of innocents uh, as their principal approach in, in this war against all civilized people. Now, of course, in this year where uh, the U.S. will commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, but also in a country, which is my country, where we have been suffering since uh, in the last years, especially 2015, 2016, but still more recently, uh, at the end of last year, we had two terrorist attacks on our territory, which killed uh, people, uh, a teacher on the front, on the streets near Paris, uh, who was horribly murdered, and on three uh, Catholic faithful in a church uh, in the south southeastern France. So we 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 see that the the terrorist organizations we fight in and uh, also in Afghanistan uh, because uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda are also in Afghanistan. Uh, we 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 see that they are. Uh, 
weaker maybe because there is no more caliphate of ISIS, uh, Daesh, uh, in uh, Syria and Iraq. They have lost their territorial ground. But we see in many places, even all new places like the north of Mozambique in uh, south uh, eastern uh, Africa, we see uh, that those organizations try to, to come back and are still very, very active. Uh, underground, uh, they try to re reconstitute their forces. They, they remain very active as a propagandists on the on the social network, and uh, so we have to act. One of the things we try to do with uh, the initiative launched uh, by in 2019 by the New Zealand's Prime Minister and the French President, the called the so-called Christchurch Call to Action, is really to 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 unite all international efforts to suppress terrorist contents on the internet, not only from jihadist threats, also from extreme right, alt-right, uh, as it was the case in the Christchurch mosques attack uh, sources. We want to suppress as a community of nations, of democracies, uh, including the tech business, to make a joint effort to delete and to, to prevent the circulation of terrorist contents and hatred speech. This is one thing we should do. but. To come back to what you said and to what we are doing in Sahel with a essential support, logistical intelligence support by the US and with more and more support by other European nations, we absolutely need to continue this effort against terrorist organizations uh, because um, the fight is not over, obviously. And we might, we, we have the, really the, the, the duty to help those countries, especially in, in fragile zones and regions like Sahel. Those countries, the, 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 what you call the G5s, they try to organize themselves to build multilateral forces, to, to work together um, across the, their borders. And we must help them to build up their own capacities. We must help them financially, of course, but we, we must also help them politically and, and militarily. They, we are there in Sahel because they asked us to come. You know, in 2013, Mali was invaded by jihadist groups. We we're about to take the whole country. And we came in 2013, France came. So it's, it's, a, it's a fight. We understand that the... Threat, the, the the competition between big great big powers is is and especially the, the 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 consequences of the rise of power of China is 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 a might be now what the U.S. considers as a, the the biggest challenge for its foreign security policy. But we must not forget the terrorist threat which does continue, which does exist, and which continues to exist. I think we should have learned in December 2011 when we left Iraq and declared that war over that wars don't end when one party disengages, right? These jihadist terrorists aren't looking around now in Afghanistan. So, well, the Americans are gone. I guess we'll just stop. And so I think I think it's uh, it's important for us to have a sustained effort. And of course, the the kind of burden sharing that that we're doing with France, and I think especially as you mentioned, with indigenous forces that we help enable. I think that allows us to keep our population safe at a, at a relatively low cost. And I, for one, deeply appreciate what uh, what France is doing in the in the in the G5 Sahel. You know, I, I'd like to talk to you just about the Middle East in general. Right, Philippe, you're you know, you're you are a wise person. And France has been engaged you know, in, in the Middle East for for a long time. <laughs> a lot of Americans these days, they look at the Middle East and they see it as a mess to be avoided. Right. And and, uh, and it does look like a mess. Right. Uh, Lebanon, where France has a long relationship, 
is in free fall with the utter collapse of its economy after the corruption within its financial sector uh, came to light amidst the COVID crisis. And of course, that big explosion at the, in, in, uh, uh, in Beirut almost just seemed to punctuate uh, what is a disastrous situation there. The Syrian civil war continues. And, and of course, that is really, I, I look at it as really a, you know, serial episodes of mass homicide and a humanitarian catastrophe there. Yemen, okay, I mean, it, it looks terrible. How do you, what, what is the importance of the Middle East to Europe, to France? And what do you think the, a policy is that can address some of the maladies within, in the Middle East with the understanding that, hey, the problems in the Middle East don't stay there, unfortunately, right? And, and, uh, and, and so we have a humanitarian dimension, but also there's a, there's a very important security dimension to the Middle East broadly. What, what's your view? And, and maybe begin with Lebanon and just talk more broadly about the region. Well, I, I can understand that uh, for um, American citizens, this uh, region seems very uh, difficult and difficult to understand, but also very difficult to handle. Um, there is, of course, a difference with the uh, European Union. I, I think that you had also a conversation with uh, one or other uh, among our former common colleagues and friends, Mariangela Zapia, our Italian colleague. Uh, I think she explained to you, and it, it's also very, very strongly felt in France. This region is our, it's our neighborhood. It's our neighborhood, uh, and uh, everything happening in in Libya or uh, in uh, in Lebanon or in Syria is, um, as you said. Uh, will come to us and uh, we we have to to consider these uh, neighbors uh, uh, also as a, a big uh, opportunity basically because uh, the Mediterranean uh, the Mediterranean space is a, is a space of civilization of exchanges and uh, our deepest wish uh, especially the, the Mediterranean nations of the European Union which is Spain, uh, France, Italy, um, uh, Greece, um, Cyprus, Malta. We have always tried together with our other EU uh, nations to develop a project of uh, peace, cooperation, stability and security in the Mediterranean. It's absolutely essential. And we, we have launched a, a number of projects and we will continue to do this. But uh, um, if it has not worked uh, as well as we we would have wished, it's also because the problems of these regions are there. They are they, they are not new, and uh, we uh, we have uh, to answer your questions. Echa, we have to continue to fight against the terrorism, which is what we said in the previous question, which is really important, and we have to fight for uh, the rights of those peoples to be heard, and to fight as we did together when we were NSA, on the basis of our principles uh, to close this terrible war in Syria, of course. This is really the... To, we have to, to, to bring... Um, uh, in Libya, for instance, um, we have a window of opportunities now. We have um, a new government. We have elections uh, which should take place on, on December 24th in Libya. So we have to push all this positive agenda of stabilizations, but also to fight without compromise against the threats, to uh, which are not only threats to our countries, which are first threats to their those countries. The, the, the first victims of uh, jihadist terrorism 
are Muslim citizens. Uh, also, we have victims in our countries. But so those are the things we have to do, and not not forgetting this project, this important project by the EU of creating with its neighbors, southern neighbors, southeastern neighbors, at one point, a common space of stability of cooperation, which, which we will continue to work on this agenda, which is a, maybe a longer term agenda. Well, thank you, Philippe. And you know, I, I, if we were almost out of time, <laughs> but there were, two, there were two other questions I had, and I wonder if, if I might just lump them together and ask you to answer as, as quickly as you can. Uh, for, first of all, uh, on on uh, these two agreements, I guess I'll link them between the two agreements that President Macron was on the phone to President Trump <laughs> quite a few times. And you and I had a number of conversations trying to convince President Trump to stay in the Iran nuclear deal, as well as, as the Paris Climate Agreement. Of course, uh, uh, President Trump was unpersuaded on both counts. But but uh, what are the prospects, you think, it, for, for our ability to work effectively on climate change and man-made carbon emissions as part of that. I saw the recent announcement that that that, uh, that that France is going to reduce maybe the percentage of its reliance on nuclear power, which has been a great strength, I think, for France in, 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 uh, in, in reducing carbon emissions. And, and then what do you think the prospects are for this Iran nuclear deal? Frankly, Philippe, it, it looks dead to me. I mean, we're trying to, <laughs> the Biden administration is trying to bring it back to life. But I think it, it seems dead based on what Iran is doing, uh, as as well as as what the uh, what what is happening with the, the impending uh, sunset clauses and so forth. But could you comment on Iran and climate, um, and and just we'd love to hear your thoughts on both. Well, on climate, uh, with the U.S. back to the um, to the Paris climate accord, uh, the question now is how we can raise the ambition of all all big greenhouse gas emitters to reach the uh, objective of limiting the uh, global warming, which is absolutely vital for all, for all of us. Um, though it will be something we, we, which we'll do um, together with the US and with other partners. But I must stress that uh, in spite of the position taken by, by the President Trump, uh, many, many actors in the US, local governments, business communities, uh, civil society, remain very active uh, pursuing the same goals. So uh, we, we can draw on this um, um, uh, very, very active uh, partnership with many, many actors in the US and now with uh, again with the US as such as government. So the, if we have reduced the, the share of uh, nuclear energy in our in electricity mix, or more precisely, if we want to reduce it from uh, around 70% to um, 50% until 2035, it's because 50% 50 remains very, really important. We, we, we fully remain committed to the, the, the role of civil nuclear energy, like the US, as a carbon neutral energy uh, inside our energy and electricity mix. But we want to re reduce somewhat its share to have a, a bigger share for renewable energies, but it remains uh, really important. On Iran, uh, I understand your uh, observation, but on the other end, uh, we have no choice to do everything we can to prevent Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. It remains our goal. And our disagreement with um, uh, President Trump 
consisted in uh, the choice of instruments and policies to reach this goal. The second important goal, of course, is to secure a, a straight, a, a more stability for the region, with the, which is not the, the result of Iranian policies in the region. You mentioned Lebanon. I would have loved to answer on Lebanon also, but also uh, Yemen and so on. So. We don't think that the, 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 the policy which have, has been pursued in the last years has been successful uh, in the US, at least by the US. We want, and we have always said, HR, you know, because we had discussion on this, we agree that the GCPOA, as it has been signed in 2015, is not enough. You mentioned the, the sunset clause, you mentioned, uh, we, I mentioned regional activities. We need to go to do more to have a stronger framework. But we have also, and first to come back to the compliance with the GCPOA, and Iran is not doing this at all, you're right. But you, you, you will see the European nations, together France, the UK and Germany, continuing to work as much as we can to, uh, to restart these uh, negotiations. Sorry, I have been a bit long, but uh, thank you for the great questions. Ambassador Philippe Etienne, what a tour de force. Merci. On behalf of the, the Hoover Institution, thank you so much for helping us learn more about battlegrounds, important to building a future peace and prosperity for generations to come. What a pleasure it has been to, to be back with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Itcha. See you soon, hopefully, in Stanford or in Washington. Bye. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.